Today on BASIC, former ESPN anchor Jamel Hill. When they first approached us about being sports center hosts, we both laughed because we thought they were joking. We're like, have you seen our show? They loved the fact that our show was so personality driven. The thing that was pretty apparent before we ever had our first sports center show is that I was just really concerned about our creative differences that we had with, with management. You know, to be candid, the job was not fun for me. It's the best paying job I ever had at ESPN, but it's the worst job I had at ESPN too because the fights every day over the smallest of things was really draining and exhausting. And this is before all the things happened with the Donald Trump controversy. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Basic. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive and aspiring podcaster. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And I'm a recovering podcaster who's now once again an aspiring podcaster. Basic is the official podcast of the unofficial history of basic cable television. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you might know that we previously spoke to Sports Center anchor Dan Patrick about the early days of ESPN. Well, our guest today is Jamel Hill, who's going to bring us a more up to date version of the channel. So, Jamel made news a few years ago due to some friction between her and ESPN over a tweet that she posted about President Donald Trump. And while she's no longer at ESPN, she remains a really important and witty voice through social media and her work at The Atlantic and some other projects. We're going to talk to her today about how she navigates the intersection of sports, politics, culture, and even comedy. And Jen and I will be back after our chat to break it all down for you. But right now, it's Jamel Hill on BASIC. Jamel Hill, welcome to BASIC. We ask every guest this traditional first question, which is, do you remember when you got cable television for the first time? Ooh, uh, I do remember when I got cable TV. Well, I, I guess I sort of had two different experiences with cable. My grandmother got it first before we had it in, in my own house. So I remember when she got it, and this is back in Detroit, because that's where I grew up. And it was a cable system. It was called Barton Cable System. And it was owned by a guy named Don Barton, who um, he it was Black-owned. It's one of the few Black-owned cable companies to service a major city in America during this time. So music was a big part of my life. So, of course, I was super excited about MTV and BET as well. So I was really excited to be able to watch videos whenever I wanted. And then, of course, as cable progressed a little bit, there was a channel called the Video Jukebox Channel where you had to pay money and then you would see the video that you wanted. And one time I actually ordered a video. First and only time I've ever ordered a video. It was NWA straight out of Compton. It's the only time. But uh, yeah, and, and plus my grandma, she had premium channels. So she got HBO out the gate. I was I, mean, <laughs> I was living in heaven. <laughs> you had now have the second NWA reference on this show. The first came from Fab Five Freddy, who was one of our very first guests, who talked about meeting them for the first time and having yet to listen to the record. And it really, he was like, oh my God, MTV's never going to play this. And you also get credit for the first reference to video jukebox, which I had completely forgotten about. That may be a subject for a further episode. It was a different time then. I think different so. time. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> so uh, to shift gears a little bit, Jamel, I'm curious, like when you first got interested in sports, like were you an athlete as a kid or were you even like writing for your school newspaper about sports when you were younger? When I was in high school, I took a high school journalism class. But before I even took the class, I was very interested in newspapers because back in those days, the only way you could really follow your sports team is by reading the newspaper. So I read the sports sections of the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press pretty religiously. And that helped me develop a love for journalism, for writing. And I was already a voracious reader. So 
I just kind of put two and two together when I was in high school and haven't looked back. I mean, I've been very fortunate because a lot of people, they usually wind up changing their careers multiple times. They're what they want to do, you know, for the rest of their life. I knew it was never going to happen for me, anything related to science or math, two (laughs) subjects I hated. So that left writing. So making the decision to become a sports journalist, you've given a little bit away in terms of how old you might be, but that was not a obvious choice necessarily at the time when you were getting out of school, right? I mean, being a journalist, female journalist is one thing, but being a female sports journalist is something else entirely, right? Yeah. And I I didn't make that decision when I got out of college. I made that decision in high school when I started. I started as I wanted to write sports because that's the section I read in the newspaper. And even though I didn't know this was something girls weren't supposed to be doing, I still did it anyway. I mean, I was really lucky because When I was in, I think this is right before my senior year, I was a part of an apprenticeship program that the Detroit Free Press had, where they had 10 to 12 Detroit metro area students. They hired you for a summer at the newspaper. It was an intensive program where they taught you about journalism, taught you about writing, putting together stories, sources, that kind of thing. And I had two female mentors, Rachel Jones and Johnette Howard. And Johnette Howard was a sports writer on staff. And having that early exposure to somebody, to a woman who was actually covering sports, I was too naive to know that this was not a profession that women regularly, you know, that there weren't a lot of women in, that it was a very male dominated space. The free press was an exception because they had a couple of female sports writers on staff. And I didn't realize that that's not really what the world of journalism looked like. And on top of that, that summer I was an apprentice, the National Association of Black Journalists had their convention in Detroit. And the person who was over our program, she marched all of us down to the NABJ convention and made us sign up for student memberships. And those two things, um, in addition to signing up for high school journalism, changed my life because it was my high school journalism teacher who nagged me to apply for this program. And I did. And I haven't looked back. So to answer your question, sometimes what you don't know can be helpful. And maybe if I had a better sense of the fact that this is a male dominated profession, there's not a lot of women who do it, definitely not a lot of black women who are in this profession, maybe it would have made me feel self-conscious about it. But because that was not a part of my reality when I started, or it wasn't even a part of my thought process, I never went through that early wave of feeling discouraged or having self-doubt. How did you originally come to the attention of ESPN? Uh, So it was an interesting story because I came to their attention through a phrase called baby mama. (laughs) (laughs) I had written this piece that had gone viral for the Sentinel that, uh, ironically enough, the editor of the paper absolutely hated and called me into her office and was just appalled by not necessarily this story, but for that phrase I just mentioned, baby mama. I was doing a series that I had created called Writing With, where it was very simple. The thing about Orlando is that at the time, they only had one professional sports team, the Orlando Magic. So I was coming from a situation in Detroit where they had every major sports team. So like all year round, there's something to write about, something to discuss, something's always happening. Well, in Orlando, it's kind of two seasons. It's college football and then there's NBA basketball. And unless the Magic are good, it's really just college football and, and maybe pro football as well. So it's the summertime. News hole needs to be filled. I come up with this series where I interview an athlete and we just ride around in their car as I'm interviewing them. And it's just in a Q&A. Real simple stuff. So the first person I did in this series was Willis McGahee. And he, I knew Willis had, uh, he had a couple kids, uh, not by the same woman. 
And <laughs> I just was joking with him. But he answered the question in a really funny way. I said, hey, Willis, what do you think is worse, a baby mama or a wife? <laughs> and, and I was clearly kidding. Like it was, you know, and he was like, oh, baby mamas are the worst. And then he just like said <laughs> to this whole answer about how baby mamas, how they have stressed him out so much and all this other stuff. The story gets picked up by Deadspin. And it is like everywhere. All of a sudden it's like, you know, baby mama expert, Willis McGahee, like all the headlines are hilarious. And, you know, because it went viral, it drove the traffic for the piece up on the Orlando Sentinel website. But the executive editor was appalled at the term baby mama. And even though I tried to explain to her, like, this is very much in pop culture. The term baby mama is not derogatory. It's literally the description of being the mother of someone's children. That's what it is. And she did not like it at all. And, you know, I think they put a letter in my file over it. But nevertheless, that is the column that an executive at ESPN saw because it went viral. And this executive just happened to be friends with somebody that I knew in Orlando. And so they arranged a meeting and went to dinner with this executive. They had an opening for a general assignment sports columnist for page two, writing on ESPN.com. And they brought me into Bristol for an interview. And that was that. I mean, I went in there to be a writer. I didn't go in there to do TV. TV just kind of started to happen within the first few months that I was there. Because if you write opinions that they think are provocative and thoughtful, they want to put you on television. And so I look up and next thing I know, I'm doing all these different ESPN TV shows and broadcasting was nothing, wasn't anything I ever wanted to do. I never took seriously. And next thing you know, it's, it's half my job. And then eventually I transitioned into doing television on ESPN full time. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. 
and we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So when you when you started doing like more regular shows on ESPN, you were paired with Michael Smith. First, it was a podcast. His and hers was a podcast, I think. And then it became a show, right? Uh, yeah, we weren't paired together. We chose, we chose that you. life. Yes, we okay. chose we chose each other because uh, we were good friends. And Mike's a little bit younger than me, but we were kind of in the same generation of sports writers. So we kind of came up the same way. He covered the Patriots for the Boston Globe. So he had a newspaper background just like I did. And he got to ESPN before I did. And I met Mike when I was also a print reporter. I was covering the NBA playoffs and he was covering the NBA playoffs because uh, the Celtics and the Pistons had a series together. And so that's when I met him. And then, you know, I look up years later and it's like, oh, man, he's at ESPN. So once I got there, just as friends, we, of course, commiserated together. We were going through a lot of the same things. You know, it, it's a really big fight for real estate at ESPN. A lot of very mm-hmm. talented people there. Only so many slots. And so you kind of have to fight your way through to be seen. And Mike and I were kind of going through a bit of invisibility, you know, in the building. And so we were just trying to always figure out ways where we could get to a platform that kind of understood us. And we we used to have such, you know, great conversations that we wondered there's got to be a way that we can bring our chemistry to on air. So we started peering on shows like First Take Together, debating one another when, when Skip was on vacation and uh, we would take the debate chairs and different other programs we would be on, sports reporters, uh, that kind of thing. And then we kind of got tired of uh, knocking on doors at ESPN and telling people like, hey, we think we really have something here. You guys should find a platform for us. So we started a podcast. I mean, we went to the audio division at ESPN and podcasting was still pretty new. I mean, Bill Simmons' podcast was very successful and also the fantasy football podcast. But it, was, it was early on for a company like ESPN, though. You were ahead of the game. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about what, 2011, 2012. Yeah. So podcasting wasn't what it is now. So we're talking about a decade ago. We just decided like, hey, we're just going to do our own thing. And the good thing was that we were able to really kind of hone ourselves in this medium in podcasting. And a lot of people started to really enjoy them. And we got some critical acclaim because we actually didn't want to talk about sports at all, but we knew we couldn't get away with that. So we find a way to connect sports to like our real lives or to like broader issues that people could relate to. And it went over very well. And the podcast was really, really successful. And during that time, I got an opportunity to do television with Mike on a show called Numbers Never Lie. And eventually, because of the success of the podcast and because it was becoming so branded to our names, John Skipper, the former ESPN president, made the decision to change the name of Numbers Never Lie, our TV show, into his and hers. Oh, okay. got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, in terms of kind of the format of what you were doing on that show, I mean, you guys would do like sketch comedy sometimes. We did. I mean, were you just kind of allowed you and Michael to come up with these ideas and run with them? I mean, how much feedback did you get from the network about what you were supposed to be doing? We were pretty convinced there's no way they could be watching our show. <laughs> like they, they don't know what we're doing. Like they, they had no idea. You know, the, the thing was when it became his and hers, the TV show, and we're on ESPN2, people have to think about what ESPN2 was during that time. So they wanted 
the programming between ESPN, which around the building we call E1, and ESPN2. They wanted them to be very different, right? On ESPN, you knew you were getting Sports Center, you knew you were getting live events, and pretty straightforward programming. They wanted ESPN2 to be where you could expect commentary and fun and conversation and that sort of thing. So the lineup, when we first started, it was Mike and Mike, First Take, Us, Sports Nation, Dan Levitard, like that was the lineup. So we, we're we all kind of similar shows in terms of being debate, conversation shows. So like that is the place where you can try doing sketches and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we never ran that by anybody. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we just kind of did it. And when I was in Detroit, I had a sports editor named Gene Myers, and he used to say that his motto was to do one dumb thing a day, right? <laughs> just get it one dumb thing a day because what he meant was like, just try a crazy idea. You never know. Mm-hmm. Well, that that propelled you to the literal center of the mothership, as many people call it, right, which is Sports Center. And we had Dan Patrick on earlier on this podcast. And Sports Center has changed dramatically since he and Keith were doing it. And so what kind of Sports Center did you inherit? And what do you think was expected of you and Michael? And and how do you look back on your Sports Center tenure? Well, it, when they first approached us about being sports center hosts, we both laughed because <laughs> we thought they were joking. We're like, have you seen our show? <laughs> like, do you, like, we're not really sports center anchor material, okay? <laughs> they love the fact that our show was so personality driven. And at this time, they wanted sports center to be more personality driven. Uh, Scott Van Pelt had launched his own sports center and they thought that, you know, it was very successful. And they were looking for the same thing at six o'clock. Of course, they had noticed that the decline in Black viewership on the Six O'Clock Sports Center had been pretty steady. The decline period. I mean, you know, ESPN is competing with a cell phones, so you don't have to watch ESPN to get highlights of your team. You can go to that team's website. You can get highlights sent to your phone. So there are digital sites that just specialize in highlights. So they had a lot of competition. It was no longer the thing that was setting them apart. So we knew all this, but it offered us the opportunity to have the biggest audience we had ever had to go from being in a closet studio to being in their $125 million digital center and having an enormous studio to having our production staff tripled overnight. We got our first ESPN commercial. So like, it was a lot of reasons why going to sports center made sense. I mean, who doesn't do that? So we did. And the thing that was pretty apparent before we ever had our first sports center show is that creatively we were on very different pages than management. You know, mm-hmm. I think we were just trying to figure out a way to bring a little his and hers to sports center and vice versa because we didn't want to leave our core audience behind. But what we learned in the early going was that sports center really wasn't a vehicle for that. And even though they wanted us to bring the magic of his and hers to Sports Center, well, bringing the magic means bringing the things that we did, and the things that we did did not match how the format of Sports Center works. Right. They don't like to break format in that regard. No, they do not. And as it was, the other difference too is that, you know, most Sports Center anchors, they tee up the news, they tell you what's happening, and then that's it. Well, Mike and I, we are opinionists. We were, we had our own discussion show. Sports at the heart of it, his and hers was a discussion show. So, right. We both had an enormous amount of experience covering sports and talking to athletes and covering teams and leagues and that kind of thing. So we were the experts, right? We didn't need to call in anybody else to report on the things we actually used to do ourselves. So we were coming from a much different place and we had some ups and downs, I think, in the early going. I mean, everybody wanted the show to be a success, but 
I was just really concerned about our creative differences that we had with with management. And, um, you know, to be candid, the job was not fun for me. It's the best paying job I ever had at ESPN, but it's the worst job I had at ESPN, too, because the fights every day over the smallest of things was really draining and exhausting. And this is before all the things happened with the Donald Trump controversy. Like all of this was going on before that even happened. And then once that happened, it was kind of clear that they were managing us differently and they were just afraid of everything. And it was just not a comfortable professional existence for me. And so I made it almost a year and I I asked to be let out of the show because I didn't enjoy going to work. (laughs) I did not enjoy doing SportsCenter. I mean, let's be clear. It was it was a mutually beneficial situation. They did not want me on SportsCenter. They couldn't tell me that because of what was in my contract. But Mm -hmm. because of the publicity and the negativity that came because of the Donald Trump stuff, it wasn't advantageous for them to have me on there. So I knew that that was the case. And I used that as my leverage to get off the show. I'm sure most people know this, but just to put it in context for anybody listening that doesn't, I believe that the Donald Trump tweet was like right after Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And you said something to the effect of Donald Trump is a white supremacist who surrounded himself with other white supremacists, which where's the lie? Um, <laughs> I think that's accurate. Uh, but that was what made them nervous. And and it's interesting to me because this was obviously a few years ago, but this issue has not gone away for like traditional media companies. They do not know how to handle having their employees on Twitter expressing themselves. Well, it's very much a traditional media mindset because, yeah, it was the same when I was in newspapers. Like, you could not, as a journalist, have any political uh, signs in your yard. They wanted it to be very clear that you were not to politically expose yourself because I think their thinking was sort of in the right place in the sense that they're trying to gain the public trust. And they feel like if the public knows that such and such who covers state government is a Democrat, then maybe her stories are not as honest or truthful or as fair because of what her political beliefs are. So they, even though you can very easily report on things that you don't believe in, I mean, like that's, I mean, I've certainly done it a bunch of times, but I think they just didn't want to create any confusion in the minds of of readers. The problem with that is that it is unrealistic because we're citizens, we're human beings. And if you want to get deeper into our identities, you know, when people look at me, they don't see journalists, they see black women. Okay. So, you know, to actually ask your employees to essentially cut off a part of who they are just for this fallacy of objectivity is ridiculous. I mean, as I got um, older in my profession, you know, I realized that the idea of objectivity was kind of a joke. You can be objective about certain things. There are other things that you can't be objective about. And I think what's undermining media now more than anything is that they continue to try to both sides everything. And we are not in a both sides time. That there is something clearly wrong with one side. And you can't continue to position something that's wrong as it just being a different perspective. No, it's wrong. There is no two sides to racism. There is no both sides in that. And so even now with the abortion conversations that are taking place, the framing has been awful. As journalists, it's our responsibility to put things in proper context. And sometimes when you do that, 
that doesn't mean you have to be objective through nonsense. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, getting back to what kicked off this discussion is that ESPN was at a in a place where they just did not want any of their ESPN personalities in any way exposing their political beliefs. But listen, it is considering the things that were happening at the country and actually compared to some of the things we're going through now, that's looking like a dreamy period almost. I mean, because we're talking about 2017. Right. And, you know, you just had a a president that just told the world that neo-Nazis taking over an American city was the equivalent of counter-protesters who were trying to stop hatred and just said that there were bad people on both sides. Like, no, 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 there was clearly one side, okay? The emotion from that moment and just everything that was happening in the country is what led to that tweet, which at the time, I to be totally honest, I did not think what I said was in any way controversial. I was like, everybody knows this, right? Like, I mean, I'm not the only one seeing this. I was like, we all know this, okay? Like, it wasn't controversial. But then half the country is saying the same thing. Right. Well, but, but at that point, there wasn't a lot of people saying the same thing. And it was pretty, I mean, there were people who were certainly insinuating, because if you remember at that point, I mean, the media itself was trying to figure out how to cover this guy because he's blatantly lying and they're trying to figure out every word but lie in the headline. It's like, oh, he misremembers or saying some other euphemism. I'm like, so he lied. That's what he's he's telling us lies. okay? and we know this because we can check them. Yeah, it was just a lot of frustration and it boiled over into that exchange. And yeah, at the time, I really didn't think it would be that big of a deal. And man, that was a gross underestimation. (laughs) (laughs) ESPN itself was suddenly caught up into a political firestorm that that didn't really have anything to do with me. But uh, I was using an example of this, you know, as this firestorm was taking place, like ESPN was being accused of pretty routinely of being too political. And when you stripped away what was at the heart of what the criticism was about, ESPN was not political. I mean, the way that some of the think pieces were being written, the way certain people who had platforms were trying to contextualize ESPN, you would have thought that we were on SportsCenter every night talking about immigration reform. And it was not happening. It was literally not happening. And Yes, there was Colin Kaepernick who was protesting, started his protest in 2016, and it was still very much in the vestiges of all the fallout from that protest. And other athletes were starting to weigh in and do their own forms of demonstration. And you just saw there was a political consciousness in athletes that was awakening very loudly. So if you're a company like ESPN, you have to cover that. That's what your job is. But all the moaning about ESPN being too political started from... Uh, a couple different places. It was when Caitlyn Jenner received the Arthur Ashe Award. Caitlyn Jenner, trans woman. The reason she received the award was because of the work she had done when it came to trans youth, many of which was hard to ignore what some of the suicide statistics were of trans youth. You know, with her having been one of the most famous athletes on the planet, that's a big moment for trans people, but especially trans athletes. And that whole conversation was getting started. As soon as that happened, ESPN is just completely crucified by a lot of people for doing that. And then because of what was going on in the NFL, particularly as it relates to domestic violence, you suddenly saw more women at ESPN being more prominent on opinion shows and driving content with their opinion. And probably the company realized that there was an imbalance there. Now, I don't know if domestic violence should have been the entry point because 
on one hand, yes, it's important to have a woman's point of view. But I mean, I may be a woman, but I've, I've never been a victim of domestic violence. So I'm not an expert on domestic violence just because I'm a woman. But I understood what the thinking was. And, you know, the face of ESPN or faces were starting to change. You had me and Michael and Stephen A. Smith and Sarah Spain and Kate Fagan and Jane McManus. Like suddenly ESPN wasn't just the old boys club. And there was a lot of new faces, a lot of inclusion that was happening. And a lot of people didn't like that. And so suddenly ESPN is just being accused of being too political because the face of ESPN is changing. And that's exactly where that came from. So it had nothing to do with what we were actually discussing, which was sports. It had everything to do with the fact that there were a faction of very disingenuous people who did not like that there were people of color and women being positioned in higher platforms at ESPN. Right. And to your point, also, the world was changing. I was going to say, the world got more political, right? Yeah. You can't cover a WNBA game where everybody's kneeling at the beginning and pretend that didn't happen. Yeah. Or pretend the fact that, you know, LeBron James, arguably the biggest star in sports, calls the president a bum. The fact that you had NBA teams refusing to go to the White House. The fact that Donald Trump never invited a WNBA team to the White House or really many of the women's championship teams. The only teams he invited were teams that he knew their coaches supported him. And he didn't right. invite anybody else. So right. just that in itself became a story about who wasn't going to the White House and why. Right. So all of these things are happening and the athletes are leading this into these conversations that we're having in wider society in America anyway. And so to blame ESPN for this, it was just ridiculous. So all that is going on. And then, of course, my tweet happens and <laughs> it kind of like further detonates the bomb, if you will. And it was just a really awkward time to be there for me. Right. But then you decided kind of mutually, right, it's time to part ways and went on your more recent journey. Yeah. So tell us about kind of leaving ESPN and what you thought the next steps were in teaming up with Carrie Champion. Listen, I was at ESPN for 12 years, longest job I've ever had. Wow. But, you know, I realized that my time there was up. There was nothing else I wanted to do, nothing else I felt like I needed to accomplish. It was just time. I still wanted to stick to the core of who I am, which is a writer, a journalist, commentary. I still wanted to do that. So I, I went to work with The Atlantic, a, a publication I'd always respected and loved. And I wanted to be somewhere writing where they were still strongly invested in journalism because it was kind of hard to find because, you know, a lot of places were shrinking, you know, not as committed or committed to kind of the wrong things. And so The Atlantic was very much a safe haven and a place where I knew I could do good work. So I was very excited about that. Hey, Jamel, we got one final question before we let you go that we also ask everybody. What is your all-time favorite basic cable show? And it could be something from when you were a kid in grandma's house to right now. <laughs> all-time basic cable show. No, so you said basic, so not premium, right? Exactly. Thank you for clarifying. Okay. You're really okay. one of the first yeah. people who's actually said that. <laughs> yeah, because the word basic jumped out at me. I was like, oh, okay, you don't mean... So you yeah. HBO and show. You can't say like The Sopranos yeah. or whatever, yeah. No, no, you can't say, all right. I think it might be, they say go with whatever pops in your head. I think it might be Bar Rescue. Oh, there you go. Bar <laughs> I Rescue. I think it might be Bar Rescue. Yeah. That was my show when I ran Spike TV. <laughs> what? 
Oh my okay. god, I am the yeah. biggest bar rescue stand. Oh my god, I love this show. Really? I'm still Facebook friends with him and his wife. I still hear from them. No every way. Once in a while. John, oh, if yeah. I ever yeah. met John Taffer, I would lose it. Like I, I love just... John Taffer. He's a he's a really, really good guy. Yeah, all of my favorite shows are usually competition shows or reality shows. Like one of the two, probably. But yeah, I'm, oh, I good. might go with I might go with Bar Rescue. Bar Rescue, under, underrated. Good, strong choice, Jamel. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for being here. We really enjoyed having oh, you. Oh, thank you. This was my pleasure. Thank you guys for the conversation. So Jamel Hill, so delightful and smart and interesting. And really, I think, brings to light how, I mean, we all know the world's changed, but certainly the way we look at our news, our sports, our information, our entertainment has all changed so dramatically over the last few years. I think she was in her time at ESPN or, or the end of the time at ESPN. She was sort of right at the center of it. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, she was saying the show that she was doing with Michael, it was sports, but they would also go off on tangents and do pop culture stuff and talk about other things. And I think that is now very common. Also in that same era, Bill Simmons was doing that. And eventually went off and launched Grantland and now The Ringer. And those are sites that are sports driven, but they also have a lot of pop culture coverage as well. And, you know, the idea of like staying in your lane or uh, as someone once said, just shut up and dribble. Like that doesn't apply even to people who who cover sports. I mean, they want to talk about other things. I cover pop culture, but sometimes I talk about sports too. I think we're all multifaceted people. And I think people are looking for multifaceted commentary as well. Yeah, and, and a place like ESPN is just trying to keep the floorboards nailed down and Sports Center remains, even still, I'm sure, you know, a big focus for them. And, it, and it's format driven. You know, they want to do a good job of, even though they're, they're late now because of the internet on everything, they still want to give you the scores and the highlights and without a ton of personality and without a ton mm-hmm. of humor. And maybe she, she would still be there if they let her do her original show which was leaning on her and her partner to do both information and bring a lot of personality to it and even a lot of humor to it. Because it seems she likes to bring all of that together. You know, that's sort of like, I guess, a running theme in what our conversation was, which is just when you have a really big media company, they can be kind of rigid about what they expect of you. And I think the fun stuff, the stuff that ends up breaking ground is the stuff that, you know, like Jamel was saying, is do something stupid once a day. Like that's where you find (laughs) the weird stuff. But a lot of times a big company, whether it's a newspaper or a network like ESPN, they're not always comfortable giving you the bandwidth to do that. And uh, I wish they would do that more. Yeah, well, you got it. Sports Center is not the place to do it. She really has a very distinctive voice and a real point of view, which I think is everything in a TV personality or a media personality. You know, Stephen A. Smith gets to be Stephen A. Smith every day and scream and go crazy and do what he does every morning. He can't do that on Sports Center. They're never going to let him do that on Sports Center. He has to have his own platform. So, as uh, we've been talking about, like Sports Center doesn't feel quite as central. And some of that is because, as we said, the internet, you get your scores from other places. You're not waiting to watch Sports Center. But if that's the case, like, why not try to like reinvent it a little bit, not completely change it, but just like interject more personality into it, you know? You know, from sitting on the other side of the fence, it's tricky out there. And, and you know, these companies are getting hammered, their stocks getting hammered. The basic cable audience, as we know, we talk about is diminishing, right? And so they have become very risk adverse. And so the idea of actually doing something dumb once a day, which is something I grew up on at MTV. In fact, we would try to do three or four dumb things a day and see what worked. That's gone a little bit out of the equation and particularly at a place, think like ESPN. But I mean, I also feel like a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about on on this podcast has happened because somebody 
said, okay, go, go do that dumb thing. That's exactly right. Let's try the Daily Show. Let's try Beavis and Butthead. Let's try, you know, I feel like that we've had conversations over and over again about people feeling like they let us just do what we want. And then yeah. it turned out okay. Well, when nobody was watching and the stakes, you know, were lower, it was certainly easier and dumb ideas kind of ended up ruling the day. Now it's, they have all this data they're looking at and the data they get, they gather, which is immense and enormous, is all gathered to take away risk. Whereas I grew up in an era of cable where it was all about taking risks because we didn't have any data. <laughs> we just we, we just had our wits, whatever they were, and let's see what happens. But it's I think it's kind of completely turned on its head. Well, and the, the flip side of that from a journalism perspective is that you never knew how many people were reading your story when you wrote in a newspaper. I mean, you knew how many right. subscribers you had, but... You didn't know who's reading the actual story. Right. But n- now I know how many people are reading my story every second from looking at the the metrics online. And you can take that information and it's useful. You're like, oh, wow, we have a lot of people who are interested in X show. Is there something else that we can say about it? Or you can feed out garbage that just hits the SEO points and keeps bringing you page views. Obviously at New York and Vulture, we're not doing that, but it is helpful information. It's, no, it's a great tool. Yeah, yeah, it's a great tool, but it should not get in the way of great ideas. I agree. And taking a chance every, you know, I'm sure you wake up some mornings and go, I don't know who's going to read this, but I really feel like writing this. And I think it's a story that needs to be told. Yeah, that's like every day. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea who cares about this, but here I go. (laughs) Well, hopefully we get an idea who cares about this. And hopefully it's you folks listening. Hope you enjoyed Jamel Hill. And Jen and I will see you next time on BASIC. BASIC is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Chaney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.